the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is producing today's program. Clark Hilton Engineering. Today we're going to talk with Shelby Abbott. He is a, a campus minister and the author of Pressure Points, a guide to navigating student stress. And he goes in areas where you might not expect a book of this sort, uh, but does a great job. We're also going to talk in the second hour of today's program with Hans von Spakovsky. He's a senior legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about the uh, uh, census and why or whether it's important to number non-citizens as well as citizens. We're also going to take a look at a decision we'll talk about in a moment, but we'll uh, ask Hans von Spakovsky to weigh in on a judge who's rejected a motion to change the census legal team. Now, that may seem relatively insignificant to an outsider looking in. We'll find out what that might mean moving forward as the president is considering an executive order. We've also learned that the House has threatened to withhold funding from that portion of the census uh, should, in fact, the president move forward. So a lot going on in this developing story that just broke uh, just a short time ago. So all of that and more in today's program. First, looking at some of the day's headlines, uh, U.S. Attorney General William Barr says he sees a legal way to add a citizenship question to the census, despite the Supreme Court's ruling two weeks ago. In an interview with the Associated Press on Monday, Barr said the Trump administration will take action in the coming days that he believes will allow the government to add the controversial census query. Now, controversial may not be the right word because it's been on the census for most of our nation's history, and it uh, was moved to another survey just uh, about 10 years ago. Anyway, uh, Barr didn't detail the plans, but a senior official said the president is expected to issue a memorandum to the Commerce Department instructing it to include the question on census forms. On the 27th of June, the Supreme Court found that the reasoning provided by the administration for the citizenship question that it would help them enforce the Voting Rights Act was insufficient and sent the case back to the lower court for further consideration. However, matters could become complicated as House Democratic leadership has indicated that there will soon be a full House vote to hold Barr and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross in criminal contempt over their failure to comply with subpoenas regarding the citizenship question on the census form. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi blasted the um, question as uh, Trump's attempt to make America white again, which is absurd given the fact that there are questions on the census regarding race. And if she was concerned about that, then perhaps eliminating those questions would be a more appropriate way to make race less of an issue. But we'll leave it at that for now. Uh, Also, House Speaker uh, Pelosi late Monday called on Labor Secretary Alexander Acosta to step down for what she called an unconscionable agreement with Jeffrey Epstein, who was charged earlier with sex trafficking in New York City federal court. Back in 2008, Epstein uh, faced similar charges and Acosta, then a U.S. attorney in Miami, helped secure a plea deal that resulted in an 18-month sentence for the politically connected hedge fund manager. Epstein served only 13 months. The deal was criticized as lenient because he could have faced a life 
sentence. One of the more controversial elements of that is that there were no witness statements included in that. It's not all that unusual for the federal government to decide that the state should handle the issue. But the fact that none of the witnesses were uh, called in this case is another element to be considered. Meanwhile, Bill Clinton distanced himself from Epstein on Monday as a spokesman for the former president knows nothing of the alleged crimes. Clinton admitted flying on Epstein's airplane four times between 2002 and 2003 as part of his work for the Clinton Foundation, but said he had not talked to him in over a decade. President Trump also came forward saying that they had something of a falling out more than a decade ago as well. Meanwhile, um, Mueller has uh, Barr's blessing to back out of the July 17th testimony that he has been asked to give to the House. Well, Attorney General William Barr said in an interview that the Justice Department would support Robert Mueller if he decided he doesn't want to subject himself to questioning from congressional de- uh, Democrats at a planned July 17th hearing. His comments raised the dramatic possibility that Mueller would pull out of the questioning at the last minute, a potential coup for Democrats. As some Republicans and commentators have said, Mueller's testimony could end up revealing fundamental problems with his now closed investigation. And in a White House speech that touted his administration's environmental efforts, President Trump issued a new full-throated denunciation of the Green New Deal championed by top Democrats, including New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, saying the proposal would devastate the economy and hit minorities the hardest. The address was aimed at publicizing the often underreported work of the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, as well as firing a political shot across the bow of Democrats who largely have dominated the conversation on climate change. Meanwhile, Ocasio-Cortez, Senator Bernie Sanders uh, will introduce a resolution declaring a climate change emergency. They did that earlier today, along with a representative from Oregon, a move that comes after the Green New Deal failed to take off uh, uh, earlier this year. And lawyers for the Massachusetts woman who was convicted of involuntary manslaughter for encouraging her suicidal boyfriend to kill himself urged the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday to throw out her conviction because it violated her right to free speech. Michelle Carter's lawyer called her conviction in Conrad Roy Third's death unprecedented, saying it raises uh, crucial questions about whether words alone are enough to hold someone responsible for another's suicide. And the Supreme Court is going to consider whether public schools can keep their monopoly on teaching kids religion. Uh, that's one of the cases on the docket for the U.S. Supreme Court. Also, um, Cuomo signs a, has signed a new law permitting Congress to access the president's New York tax returns. You can find out more about that at the um, National Review. And H. Ross Perot, an eccentric Dallas billionaire whose two independent runs for president in the 90s tapped into a voter's frustration with the major political parties and foreshadowed the rise of the Tea Party two decades later, died on the 9th at his home in Dallas. He was surrounded by family. He was 89. Tom Steyer, who changed his mind about running for president, the billionaire progressive activist and a leader in the drive to impeach President Trump, said earlier this year he wouldn't run for the White House. But today he announced in a four minute campaign video that he's launching a bid for the Democratic presidential nomination. More on that later in the program. And the federal $15 minimum wage would eliminate 1.3 million jobs, according to the Congressional Budget Office. Again, we'll talk more of the details later in the program. The number of people taken into custody after illegally crossing from Mexico into the United States dropped in June for the first time in six months, plummeting by more than 37,500 since May. 
according to two officials with firsthand knowledge of the data. Exactly 94,487 people were arrested crossing between ports of entry in Texas, New Mexico, Arizona and California last month. By the way, the U.S. Hispanic population surged another 1.2 million last year and now is a record 59.9 million, according to newly released U.S. Census Bureau population estimates. The percentage of Hispanics as part of the overall U.S. population also jumped to 18 percent. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up shortly, Shelby Abbott, author of Pressure Points, A Guide to Navigating Student Stress. By the way, 53% say they do support the uh, citizenship question on the census. 32% do not, according to the Washington Examiner. Hugh Hewitt, in uh, reflecting on all of this, says this, and I'm quoting, Restoring the census question will not resolve our political divisions, but it will begin to reduce the suspicion that the courts generally, and the Supreme Court specifically, is going out of its way to obstruct Trump, even though the Supreme Court correctly, in my minority view among conservatives, went out of its way to empower Obama via its ruling on the Affordable Care Act in 2012. The same set of rules and the same deference must apply to all presidents, not merely those beloved by elites. Perspective to consider. Well, Iran said it had already begun enriching uranium beyond the cap set in the landmark 2015 nuclear deal and threatened to boost enrichment to 20 percent purity, escalating tensions with European partners who are struggling to salvage the accord in the face of tightening U.S. sanctions. And New Zealand's government in running into stiff or rather is running into stiff resistance to new gun rules from firearm owners who are slow to surrender now prohibited weapons and will probably never turn them in. As of last week, only around 700 weapons had been turned over. There are an estimated 1.5 million guns with an unknown number subject to the new prohibition on semi-automatic firearms in the country overall. On this day in 1776, the Declaration of Independence is read aloud to General George Washington's troops in New York. On this day in 1850, Zachary Taylor, the 12th president of the United States, dies after serving only 16 months of his term. And on this day in 1893, the first successful open heart surgery is completed. 1893. And on this day in 1992, Bill Clinton taps Tennessee Senator Al Gore to be his running mate. Well, a federal judge in New York today denied a bid from the Justice Department to replace the team of lawyers on the census citizenship question case, writing that its request to do so was patently deficient. The department had earlier this week announced its intention to swap out the legal team on the case without saying exactly why. A person familiar with the matter said the decision was driven in part by frustration among at least some of the career lawyers who'd been assigned to the case about how it was being handled, though the department wanted to replace those in both career and political positions. But U.S. District Judge Jesse Furman denied the formal legal bid to do so. Defendants, he writes, provide no reasons, let alone satisfactory reasons, for the substitution of counsel, Furman wrote. He also noted that a filing in the case was due from the department in just three days and that the department had previously pushed for the matter to be moved along quickly. If anything, that urgency and the need for efficient judicial proceedings has only grown since that time, Furman wrote, again, the judge. Judge Furman said the department could refile its request if it gave satisfactory reasons for the attorney's withdrawal and promised that the attorneys who had worked on the case previously would be available upon request. The judge also asked the department to file an affidavit providing unequivocal assurances that the substitution of counsel will not delay further litigation of the case or any future related case. 
uh, how a census question about citizenship ended up in the Supreme Court uh, is a, a big question. Three judges have found the, uh, that Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross gave a phony reason for adding a citizenship question to the 2020 census. Furman did uh, allow two attorneys who had previously left the Justice Department to be removed. The judge's decision was um, latest, uh, the latest development in the continuing effort by the Trump administration to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. We'll talk more about that with Hans von Spakovsky and what this might mean moving forward and whether or not it's likely the question will appear on that census. Well, there have been some minor seismic activity at Mount Hood since Monday afternoon, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. As of 11 a.m. today, more than 30 earthquakes have been recorded beneath Oregon's tallest mountain. The USGS said the quakes have all been within one mile east, northeast of government camp and about five miles south of the Mount Hood uh, summit. That's been about two to three miles in depth. All of the earthquakes have probably been too small to feel the maximum magnitude 2.1. An earthquake swarm around Mount Hood isn't unprecedented, according to the USGS, the U.S. Geological Survey. Uh, One most recently occurred in 2014. The largest earthquake ever recorded near Mount Hood was a magnitude 4.5. That was back in 2002, late June. Well, the USGS doesn't believe the earthquake signifies something more is happening at Mount Hood based on similarly... Uh, similarity, rather, to past seismic sequences near uh, Mount Hood and on past studies of uh, seism- let's get this right, seismicity uh, in the Mount Hood area, we infer that these earthquakes are occurring on tectonic faults and are not directly related to volcanic, uh, volcanic processes occurring beneath Mount Hood. Well, on the 3rd of July, the USGS said more than 70 earthquakes had occurred beneath Mount St. Helens over the past month. Last Thursday and Friday, Southern California was hit by consecutive earthquakes that damaged homes, cracked roads, caused power outages, made messes of nearby grocery and liquor stores. The tremors, uh, which were 6.4 and 7.1 magnitude respectively, were the largest to hit the region in 20 years. The faults that were triggered intersect the San Andreas Faults, which runs the length of the state and could set off a massive earthquake. Well, in the Pacific Northwest, according to Elise Heron, writing for Willamette Week, an equal, if not more menacing fault, the Cascadia subduction zone threatens to trigger an earthquake of up to 9.2 magnitude. But experts say California's quakes aren't likely to trigger the big one here. The Oregonian first reported Chris Goldfinger, an Oregon State University professor and earthquake geologist, says that's um, because the San Andreas Fault is a very complicated system that is connected to the Cascadia Fault via the Ring of Fire an area of high volcanic and earthquake activity in the Pacific Northwest, it's logical to question whether California quakes could set off the Oregon big one. But he says not to worry yet. This one was far enough away that the uh, chance of it affecting anything up here is low. If there is a connection at at this point, we don't know about it yet. Still, California rumbles. Uh, Remind Portlanders to prepare for the worst when the big one does hit here. And it, it is expected at some point to hit here. That includes making safety plans, stockpiling emergency food, water, medicine, and other supplies. The Portland Bureau of Emergency Management suggests that people set aside enough supplies for at least two weeks or more and come up with sanitation, water treatment, and financial plans in the case of a disaster. Uh, People with uh, homeowners and renters insurance should also know that earthquake and tsunami damage is not included in most policies, according to the Northwest Insurance Council. Of course, those who fear the end of the world can also seek lessons 
uh, from Doomsday Preppers. California's earthquake is a handy reminder that we all live on a big part of a, a plate boundary. It wasn't our turn this time, but they say that turn will in fact, come. I thought it was rather interesting that uh, there was a piece on what it will feel like when that earthquake comes to Portland or to the uh, to Oregon. An earthquake expert from Oregon State University said the faults that caused the California quakes are connected to the very large faults of Oregon and Washington coast, as we've already ex- explained. But Dr. Um, Goldfinger, who studied this uh, whole thing here in the Pacific Northwest for more than a decade, is an expert on the Cascadia subduction zone. Uh, the monster fault that we are most concerned about. He says there are similarities between the California fault and the Cascadia fault in that both along the ring of fire, but an earthquake along one does not mean a quake along the other in any more is any more likely to happen. The researchers made another interesting point about all that shaking that we've seen in videos. He said the shaking from California quakes was more of a quick rattle and roll. It was intense, but over almost as soon as folks realized what was going on. In contrast, the shaking we are going to feel when the Cascadia quake happens will be less rattling, but will last much longer, four to five uh, to eight times longer in duration. It would also feel much more like um, you're on a boat dock, uh, more of a rolling motion and less of a sharp rattle and a shock. And he says it will be um, uh, that persistent shaking for three to five minutes that will cause buildings, roads and bridges to crumble if, in fact, they're not retrofit for the big one. It's something um, that a staff writer for The New Yorker detailed four years ago in her article titled The Really Big One. The region was not prepared for the most uh, part to face the earthquake of that magnitude, she wrote. More recently, she wrote an article for the Oregonians, uh, Tsunami Risk, saying for about a 70-mile skinny little strip, the reality is that it's going to devastate that area, and the only way to be safe is to get out of it in time. Well, it goes on from there, the things that we are concerned about in this uh, this area. Of course, we don't know what's going to happen in the next five minutes, let alone uh, in the next year or decades from now with regard to all of this. Um, but they tell us, again, the, uh, that we don't have to be directly concerned that California is evidence of what's going to happen to us um, most recently. Also, there was concern about a super volcano uh, in California that um, was also uh, possible, but they're telling us that that's not a, a concern in the California area either. I don't have time to go into much detail, but it's all really quite fascinating uh, to consider. All right, we're going to take a break here in just a moment. When we return, we're going to talk with uh, Shelby Abbott. He does campus ministry and is the author of Pressure Points, a guide to navigating student stress, and it's a unique type of stress that perhaps those of us who attended college some years back experienced differently. So we'll talk with Shelby Abbott about this resource to help you and those you care about manage that stress. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the modern age we live in has shaped the way many young people deal with the pressure points of life. With a unique set of pressures students experience in their transition to college, more young people are struggling with purpose, relationships, failure, community, and isolation than ever before. Author and college ministry leader Shelby Abbott believes that while technology isn't itself to blame, it forces real issues to the surface in the lives of young men and women. His new release, Pressure Points, a guide to navigating student stress, aims to confront many of these struggles, big or small, in light of the gospel. With 20 years experience in college ministry, 
He meets readers where they are in a memorable, poignant and humorous way. In fact, he's done a little stand up comedy while unpacking biblical solutions to life's pressures to help students understand the practical applications of the gospel in the big and small of everyday struggles. Well, my guest is Shelby Abbott. He is an author, campus minister, and conference speaker on staff with the Ministry of Crew. His passion for university students has led him to speak at college campuses all over the United States. He's the author of Jacked and I Am a Tool to Help with Your Dating Life. His latest release, Pressure Points, a guide to navigating student stress. He and his wife, Rachel, have two daughters. They live in Dowingtown, Pennsylvania. He joins us today by phone to talk about an important book to help uh, young people navigate the challenges of life on campus, Pressure Points, A Guide to Navigating Student Stress. Shelby Abbott, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Georgine. It's great to be here. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you started working in campus ministry. What drew you to that particular area of ministry? Um, I became a Christian my freshman year of college, and uh, it was through the ministry of crew that I came to know Christ. And so after that, obviously, I got involved with crew pretty heavily, and my life turned around. So when it came to near the end of my junior year, I had pretty much made the decision that I wanted to do full-time ministry and work with college students because uh, the ministry of crew had poured so much into me and changed my life. I really, it was just kind of an easy decision for me to come on staff uh, right after I graduated my senior year. And so it was a, uh, you know, God used the ministry itself and my passion for being with college students. I'm a pretty big extrovert. I love being around college students and the spontaneity and the fact that really the future is on the college campus today. And uh, if you reach the college campus today, you reach the world tomorrow. Uh, I believe that was true when I came on staff and I still believe that's true today. So yeah, it was a relatively easy decision for me. Well, I love that you came to faith in Christ while in college, and I think you've just encouraged lots of parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles who are praying uh, for their sons and daughters and loved ones on college campuses. What are a few of the stressors that students wrestle with today that might be different from what I, as a student many decades ago, might have wrestled with? Yeah, e- even me. I've, I've been on staff now for 20 years. Mm-hmm. I graduated in the, late, in the late 90s, and so things are way different now. I think... Um, the normal everyday struggles that a college student goes through, uh, you know, with stress about academics and social um, connections with people and all that kind of stuff, that still exists for sure. But I think now, uh, especially since when 2007 hit and the smartphone came out, a lot of things changed in the way that people communicated with one another and the way that people um, uh, got information and all that kind of stuff, not just the Internet, but smartphones in particular. And so since then, and you mentioned this kind of in my introduction, um, people have been uh, doing life in a, in a very different way, especially on the college campus. They're on the cutting edge of what is the latest and greatest in terms of technology. Obviously, social media has changed the game uh, when it comes to communicating with one another. And I found that as a result of the technology and the, and the, the saturation of social media in the lives of students, <clears throat> the issues that I think every person wrestles with when they go through college just kind of get pushed to the surface in a very quick and easily spottable way, like things like fear, loneliness, anxiety, um, those kinds of things. They're just easily and readily available in the lives of students. And so what I like to do is talk about the issues that they deal with because of our modern age and what we experience but at the same time present to them true gospel solutions 
for those things that they're wrestling with um, so that they can see that, you know, God is, is, is 100% relevant to their life, even though we live in an age that's thousands of years beyond when Christ was alive here on the planet. So, yeah. Well, I like that the use of the phrase gospel solutions, because we tend to think of the gospel as being a singular event rather than a, a lifestyle. And what you are suggesting is right. the gospel is relevant to every challenge a student is going to face on campus and helping them to recognize that and make that connection is an important part of not only uh, campus life, but life beyond campus. Yeah, of course. And, and, you know, it's it's sometimes difficult to put your finger on what what does a gospel solution mean? I'll give you an example. Like, yeah, there was a guy that I was working with last summer on a summer mission, and uh, he was a pretty good looking guy, pretty fit. And he was kind of in the habit of posting shirtless pictures of himself on Instagram all the time. And so I decided to kind of confront him about it and ask him what was going on in his life that he felt the need to post pictures of himself on a, on a pretty consistent basis on Instagram. And to his credit, he was pretty astute about what was going on. He said, you know, I, when I post a picture like that and people like it and I get a lot of comments and a lot of uh, little hearts that, that people really like it, it makes me feel good. It makes me feel like I'm worth something, like I'm valuable. And so the gospel solution I tried to apply to his life there was say, hey, what you're searching for in terms of significance and appreciation and love from people in social media and something so shallow of what you're doing, you're really looking for Jesus. You're really looking for a, a soul-satisfying relationship uh, with God, and, and you're substituting it with something that's cheap and uh, you know, kind of instant gratification. And so that's what I tried to unpack for him. That's one small kind of example of what I'm talking about when I say, when people ask questions, they have problems in their lives, let's go after the issue behind the issue or address the question behind the question, which is really, what are people longing for? They're longing for God. They're longing for uh, fulfillment in a relationship with God that they're trying to substitute in other areas that simply will never suffice. Yeah, yeah, that satisfaction that these temporary things won't satisfy. Now, I mentioned that you've done a little stand-up. Um, how has humor helped you break down walls with college students in your ministry? Because it, it can be difficult to broach a subject, the one you just mentioned, for example, um, that's yeah. serious, but exposes kind of a, a weak flank uh, and draw their attention to the gospel as the, the ultimate solution. Yeah, I did stand-up comedy for four years, um, traveling across uh, different campuses in, in the United States. And it, it's brutal. It's really, really hard. Um, uh, you get like real time feedback on everything that you say immediately from the audience, which can be good in one moment and just horrible the next moment. So I took my licks uh, being up on stage for about four years. And while that taught me a lot, um, it was also something that God was able to utilize in my life to help me really address things with students because I found that humor has the ability to break down walls and get behind some of the things that people are wrestling with or thinking about or talking about that they wouldn't ordinarily um, be willing to converse about and uh, accept, especially coming from someone who's a Christian campus minister. So um, I targeted Christians in my stand-up for, for, for the first two years, and then the second two years I was targeting non-Christians, which was even more difficult. I was trying to communicate gospel principles and and gospel stories through the medium of humor. I found that, you know, studying stand-up comedians that exist in the world uh, all the way back uh, into the 80s and 70s and stuff like that is that 
humor can be used to communicate and get at very touchy subjects. Um, and people would be willing to swallow those pills, so to speak, as mm -hmm. long as they come in a way that makes them laugh. It makes them brighten. And so I figured, you know, why, why not use the medium of humor in a way that can target difficult um, subject matter that people wouldn't ordinarily want to talk about? So with Christians, it, it actually, I talked about evangelism and the need for us as believers to share our faith on a pretty regular basis, which is always a difficult thing to talk about because people don't like uh, being <laughs> uh, kind of maybe ridiculed or persecuted, or they don't like feeling awkward when they start a conversation with someone. And so I tried to use humor to break down those walls. The, the second uh, two years, second half of stuff with non-believers, I was trying to talk about what it meant to have a relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ, and that he's the only way to heaven, which is a very offensive statement in our culture. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you can utilize humor and make people laugh and still talk about serious things at the same time, people are willing to go, even if I disagreed with him, he, he, he was pretty good. He entertained me, that kind of stuff. If you can put a, so to speak, a rock in people's shoe, uh, to make them think about stuff, and, you know, they just have to address it eventually. Yeah. And so my goal in doing stand-up was to do that, and God really utilized that in my life to be able to write the humor as well. So I love doing it. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. We're going to take a quick <laughs> yeah, break, no, but back. we'll uh, continue our conversation with Shelby Abbott. The book, Pressure Points, A Guide to Navigating Student Stress, back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 50 minutes after 4 o'clock, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky, Senior Legal Fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We're going to talk about the census. A lot happened today. We'll try to get an interpretation of what that means and whether or not it's important to have a distinction between citizens and non-citizens on that uh, census and how unusual it would be to include it this time around. All of that coming up in the next hour. Continuing my conversation with Shelby Abbott, who is a, a pastor on campuses, a minister on uh, college campuses. His book is titled Pressure Points, A Guide to Navigating Student Stress, which is uh, significantly different than the stress that you might have experienced while a student on a college or university campus. Let's talk about how the book is structured, because you have three sections that really focus on the areas where young people struggle, the pressure of finding purpose, the pressure of relationships, and the pressure uh, because of difficulty. Describe for our listeners a little bit about these three sections and what they, uh, what they include. Uh, I wanted to add, like address things kind of from beginning to end, and so I found that if we talk about uh, purpose in life, like my connection with God, uh, who 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 God wants me to be, what God's will is for my life, um, does God even like me? Kind of addressing the bigger questions that I think a lot of people deal with. Mm -hmm. uh, doing that, doing that first, and then moving on to the pressure of unique relationships that a college student experiences. Um, the the kind of the example that I use is like being in college is one of those very bizarre four year periods of time that you're under the authority of your parents still, but you're kind of not at the same time because you're making daily decisions that don't involve your parents anymore, yet many people are still connected to them in, in a lot of different ways, of course, financially, but also bigger decision-wise. So there's that, and then there's connections with friendships while you're there. There's, there's, there's two, 
two chapters that I address about modern romance and dating, um, quote unquote dating, which is, doesn't really exist anymore in, in, the, in our culture today, and how to, how to think about that in a godly way and the pressure that you can experience because of that. And then um, there's, there's a couple more chapters in there, too, just about the specific relationships that a student deals with. And then at the end, the pressure because of difficulty, things like suffering uh, that students don't often think about, um, depending on their background and where they've come from, things like when it comes to spiritual warfare, things um, about you know just asking deeper questions to help prepare them for the inevitability of life bumps and friction. And so I felt like the, the three different sections would be really good to help a, a student walk through from beginning to end, addressing, like I said, the bigger things first and then more specifics as time goes along. So, yeah. Now, as you're trying to um, help students to recognize that there are gospel solutions to their, their problems, it's intriguing to me that the first uh, chapter in the book addresses the question, does God even like me? How common a question is that, and what does that reveal about many young people today on college campuses and the challenge of of even understanding how God sees them? Um, I think it's it's one of those things that people don't—I think uh, the average Christian, if you ask them, does God love you, they would immediately say yes. But a more unique question is, hmm. does God like me? And that's one that I wrestled with quite a bit, because I knew God loved me, because the Bible told me so, and— and, um, you know, I'd, I'd heard that multiple times, but I was like, but if God, like, really spent time with me, would he actually like me? Which is a silly question to ask, because he's always, he's around all the time. But I, I wanted to know, like, how God felt about me. Mm-hmm. And so I really try to address the fact that when you are in Christ, you're not just tolerated by God, you're really uh, delighted in by God. And that's not often something that a student really grasps and believes to their core. They would say, yes, I believe that, as an intellectual answer to the question, but the way that they live their life would not indicate that they actually believe that God is delighted in them, that he's enraptured with them, he loves them, he likes them, he wants to be around them. And so um, it was an important question, I think, to go after because people are looking for significance and love and um, friendship connection. They're looking to be liked by everyone. And social media is a great uh, Mm -hmm. indicator of that. Um, And so when we ask the deeper questions, like, well, does God like me? Like in the way that someone double taps my photo to like it, or does God actually like me in, uh, in all of my messiness and flaws? And so I try to go after that in a very real way to help them to see when they are in Christ the answer is an absolute yes. And you need to let that sink in to your heart before you go any further. Because if you if you don't really believe that, your life will just be religious activity and not an actual relationship with yeah. God. That's, such in, that's an insightful uh, point that you make with young people, given the, the environment that we find ourselves in. Another uh, thing you commented on a moment ago is the fact that technology has really changed modern dating. Uh, In fact, I'm not sure the word actually applies anymore. In what ways is the digital online presentation of a person not an accurate picture of their true self? And how has that impacted the way men and women relate to one another in the, to use an arcane word, perhaps, dating environment? Yeah, the it's a it is a very like big one, and that's why I took two chapters to address yeah. it. Um, it's it's a it's a 
very uh, interesting environment now um, because of the prolific nature of smartphones and social media. So when you're putting yourself out there, um, not just in a romantic sense, but on social media, it's a polished version of yourself. It's an it's the it's the best and the brightest of who you are. And so we always try to put our best foot forward when it comes to that kind of stuff. And uh, the what I like to call the digital shield is what people put out there via social media or they communicate through text messaging and they're not actually talking to one another face-to-face. And it's a kind of layer of protection that people put around themselves in order to prevent themselves from getting hurt, um, which has always kind of existed before. It was like it used to be like you would talk to your friend and say, hey, ask her if she likes me, that kind of a, a, a padding between – you and the other person, but now since everybody's got a smartphone uh, on a college campus, they're they're choosing to communicate uh, in the ways that are the easiest um, to them in, in a way that that reduces the level of anxiety now. But in the future, uh, you have to pay for it because you don't know how to handle authentic um, conversation with someone. You don't know how to handle. Um, you know, any conflict that might pop up, any kind of relationship bumps that might might happen. So people are under underprepared for what a real mm-hmm. romantic relationship looks like because they have not practiced it from when they got their first smartphone. Yeah. So what I try to go after with them is to help them to understand that it's more difficult. Like, it's really difficult for a guy to ask a girl out face-to-face. It's just really difficult to do that, much like it's difficult for a woman uh, to to say, no, I'm not really interested when a guy shows interest in, in, in her. That's, like, really difficult. So usually people opt for the easier route, which is something through their phone, and I try to communicate to them that that's a mistake. It's a mistake. You've got to lean into the anxiety and the and the pressure of it now because that will pay off in the future it will help just like, you know, breaking down a muscle, builds it back up stronger. We need to take our hits and we need to go through those kind of things in order to see real change, real growth, real development, real maturity when it comes to relationships. So I tell them, don't start a relationship via text message. Have have the guts to go talk to someone face to face. And uh, not only we stand out as for the guys, a, a man among boys but you will you will communicate in- integrity and character in a word world that kind of just devalues devalues those those admirable mm-hmm. things in men. Yeah, it's just one of those things that people don't really care that much about anymore. So when you do something like that, that's very unique, and you're not escaping behind your phone. Um, that's going to be attractive in a number of different ways. Well, in your book, you write about escapism, the need for authentic Christian community, which can differ from just Christian community. Uh, you um, deal with uh, some subjects that you might not expect in a book of this sort. For example, uh, the need to wait, uh, the value of waiting, the uh, the subject of suffering and so on. There's just so much more than our time will permit. But uh, let me just ask you finally how a parent can best encourage their children as they transition to college and beyond um, and anticipate the pressure points that are going to uh, to be a part of that journey. It's a great question. Um, and my my daughters are young now; they're they're eight and five, and so I don't have to deal with that yet. But I know <laughs> it will be coming soon. Yeah. And so, but it's one of those things that I think probably the best thing a parent can do right now is to help their child understand the truths of the gospel. 
And I think everything else is secondary to that. A lot of times we want to set up boundaries and try to create an environment to be like, hey, don't make mistakes. Don't don't make bad decisions while you're there. Don't, you know, I'm afraid for you. I feel nervous. Really, those are legitimate concerns for a parent, but really what they need to do is instill the truth of the gospel in the heart of their son or daughter in a way that all their decision-making will flow from what has changed in their heart, um, as opposed to just setting up boundaries and rules and obedience structures yeah. for them when they go to college. If their heart is is enraptured with the gospel, if they love Jesus, they'll make mistakes. Of course they will. But at the same time, they will learn from those mistakes, and the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, because of the fact that we have accepted Christ's payment for uh, the penalty of our sins, He will help us to make better decisions in the future. That's right. Well, Shelby Abbott, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Again, the book, Pressure Points, A Guide to Navigating Student Stress, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, seven minutes after five o'clock. Glad to have you with us. Well, one of the things that we have been pondering is whether or not the census is going to include a question about citizenship. It doesn't mean that only citizens will be counted, but distinguishing between citizens and those who are in the country as non-citizens seems to be an important question. Well, there's been a lot of back and forth. A federal judge, in fact, today in New York denied a bid from the Justice Department to replace the team of lawyers on the census citizenship question case, with the exception of a couple, writing that its uh, request to do so was patently deficient. Well, what does that mean moving forward as we're hearing from the president that he's considering executive action to include that question? Well, here to help sort it all out is Hans von Spakovsky. He is an authority on a wide range of issues, including civil rights, civil justice, the First Amendment, immigration. He joins us to talk about uh, why it's important to uh, get accurate information on our population that includes the number of non-citizens as well as citizens on the census. Thank you so much for joining us, and I hope you can help us sort it all out. Well, it is kind of confusing at the moment. Uh, the, the latest the latest move by the judge to not allow uh, the Justice Department to change the lawyers on the case, I, I think, actually shows the bias of the judge involved, because there's really no reason for him not to allow the Justice Department to change the lawyers handling the case. What did they ask for a delay, an extension, or just to, to change the personnel? I mean, no, that's the only reason change. I could think of. Yeah, that just to change the personnel, and and that uh, look, the, the the particular judge in this case has shown his bias throughout the case, and this is just another sign of it. Now, as you know, earlier this week, Nancy Pelosi suggested that by including the citizenship question, this was Donald Trump's effort to keep America white again, uh, that this was a racist ploy. Now, she didn't make any mention of the fact that the census actually requests information regarding one's race. And that, you know, if you want to eliminate that as an issue, perhaps that should be addressed. But your thoughts on her comments and why is it important that we have accurate information on the census? Well, that, is, that was just an outrageous statement and a, and a ridiculous statement. Simply asking whether the respondent, the person filling out the census form as a citizen, has nothing to do with race. Uh, as you said, uh, it's, it, it, it's much worse the fact that the census asks the respondent to say what race or ethnicity they are when they fill it out. I, I wonder that she doesn't want to get rid of that. And, and, and in any event... Um, the citizenship question has been on the U.S. Census since 1820. 
It was only in 2010 that they eliminated it from the long form. And in any event, they transferred it to another survey the Census Bureau does, the American Community Survey, which has been sent out every year since then. So her claims are just ridiculous. Why is this important? Well, look, uh, we need accurate data about the population of the United States. And in particular, we certainly need to know how many people are citizens and how many are not for many reasons. Everything from the fact that you know we're in the midst of this this vigorous um, uh, debate about immigration policy and how can you have an informed debate without accurate data about that issue. And it's also important for everything from uh, redistricting, which occurs after the census, to the distribution of federal funds, which is a heck of a lot of money going from the federal government to the state. What about the Voting Rights Act? That was raised as uh, uh, an issue that in order to apply the Voting Rights Act Effectively, it's important to have accurate census information. Can you explain that connection, if there is one? There is a connection. It's a very important one. And I think the Chief Justice, when he he questioned that reason, showed, frankly, his ignorance of enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, I can can tell you it is necessary. Why? I, I spent four years at the Justice Department enforcing the Voting Rights Act. And when you are, for example... Uh, fashioning fashioning remedies for violations of the Voting Rights Act if, for example, you are trying to create a legislative district in which minority voters uh, have the ability to elect, you absolutely need to know uh, what percentage of the population are citizens and therefore are voters and will be able to vote and elect their candidate of choice. Now, the, the Supreme Court um, blocked the Trump administration's plan to add this question, saying the government had provided a contrived reason for wanting the citizenship information. Can you explain this whole process of remanding it back to the lower courts and now uh, the wrangling that's going on as the clock is ticking uh, over whether or not this question is appropriate and what the reasons for placing it on the census offered by the administration are and whether or not they're sufficient? Yeah, it's important to understand that that the administration actually won a large part of this case. Because remember, the challengers here uh, claimed, for example, that it was unconstitutional to put a citizenship question on the census. The Supreme Court said, no, of course it's constitutional. The challengers also argued that the uh, Secretary of the Department of Commerce didn't have the legal authority to put a, a citizenship question on the census. Again, the Supreme Court disagreed and said, yes, he does. It's just that the chief justice then sided with the four liberal justices to say, uh, yes, but they didn't give a sufficient reason for doing that. Uh, I think the reason they gave enforcement of the Voting Rights Act, given my own experience, was more than sufficient to do so. And, And the four conservative justices said exactly that. They said, look, the administration gave a rational reason uh, for putting the citizenship question back on the regular census, and that should have been the end of the case. But instead, the chief justice uh, and four of the justices sent it back down to the lower court to give the administration a second chance to provide a better reason for doing so. Hmm. Now, we're hearing rumors that the uh, the House is uh, considering withholding funding from that portion of the census, should the president, by executive action, and maybe you can tell us what action is available to an administration, um, and that would be a way of undermining this effort. 
your thoughts on, first of all, whether or not they have the authority, whether or not it's likely it will happen. And if the uh, the president does have executive authority in placing this question on the U.S. Census. Uh, I think the president does have the executive authority to do it, in particular to uh, enforce the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which does talk about uh, citizens when it comes to uh, voting issues. Um, can Congress uh, withhold money? Well, sure, they, they've got the power of the purse. I think that would be a foolish, um, a foolish thing for uh, Congress to do, particularly for the House, uh, to push forward, because as I said, you have to wonder, why is it that they are afraid of getting accurate data on the number of non-citizens in the country? Uh, it's not as if this is something unusual. As I said, not only do we have a long history of it, but almost every other country in the world asks a similar question, and it's something that the UN itself, the United Nations, also recommends. Now, isn't it uh, true that if you have inflated numbers um, that don't distinguish between citizens and non-citizens, that it will have an impact on uh, federal money that's spent, on uh, the political boundary lines that are being drawn, and so on? So there are political benefits to perhaps one side and deficits to the other to uh, not having this kind of accurate information? Well, certainly it it, it is. I mean, to to give an example, um, look, the main purpose of the census, of course, is apportionment after the census when they determine how many uh, members of the House of Representatives each state has based on its population. Well, if you're using total population numbers to do apportionment, it means states, uh, sanctuary states like California, that do everything they can to try to bring illegal aliens into the state, um, they, they benefit. They get more political power. They get more representative, representatives in Congress because the population figures being used to determine how, how many uh, members of Congress they have includes the very large illegal alien population. So that may be one of the reasons that states like New York and California that benefit mm-hmm. with more political power uh, uh, based on the, the, the more aliens they have don't want anyone to actually know how many of their citizens are not U.S. citizens. Well, we'll continue to follow the uh, drama as it continues. Hans von Spakovsky, appreciate so much your insight and uh, taking the time to talk with us today. Sure, thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Labor Secretary Alexander Acosta is facing mounting calls from top Democrats to resign over his involvement in a controversial plea deal years ago for financier um, Jeffrey Epstein as the uh, Trump administration fought back and the secretary himself defended his handling of the case. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer said uh, joined House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in calling for the labor secretary to go over the deal he once struck with U.S. attorney uh, giving Epstein a light sentence for two felony prostitution charges in Florida. He was arrested over the weekend, indicted for alleged sex trafficking and sex trafficking conspiracy, including allegations he preyed on dozens of victims as young as 14. He pled not guilty on Monday. Epstein should have been behind bars years ago, but unfortunately, Secretary of Labor Alex Acosta cut Epstein a sweetheart deal. While Acosta was a U.S. attorney in Florida in 2008, Schumer said on Tuesday, 
It's now impossible for anyone to have confidence in Secretary Acosta's ability to lead the Department of Labor. Well, Schumer added if he refuses to resign, the president should fire him. Well, Acosta uh, posted a series of tweets appearing to stand by his role in the plea deal while saying the alleged crimes are horrific and he... He's pleased the New York prosecutors are pursuing the new case against him. With the evidence available more than a decade ago, federal prosecutors insisted that he go to jail, register as a sex offender, and put the world on notice that he was a sexual predator, he tweeted. Now that new evidence and additional testimony is available, the New York prosecution offers an important opportunity for more... Uh, to uh, more fully bring him to justice. Well, the Trump administration has vigorously defended Acosta while downplaying his connections with Epstein, who also is um, friends with powerful figures like former President Bill Clinton. In fact, many are concerned about connections with both the uh, uh, high rollers in both party being connected in some way. White House counsel Kellyanne Conway said Tuesday that Trump told her that he hasn't spoken with or seen Epstein for 10, 15 years. Uh, she added that, like everyone else, the Republican president sees the sex trafficking trafficking charges against him as completely unconscionable and obviously criminal disgusting. She, uh, meanwhile, said Acosta is doing a great job, slammed Pelosi for what she described as a classic attempt to not focus on the predator at hand and instead focus on a member of the Trump administration. Uh, Still, um, the Labor Department said earlier in an email that Acosta has no plans on resigning from his post amid the Epstein scandal, and that is uh, ongoing with investigations yet to come. And you might recall just a day ago, we were told that uh, this is just the tip of the iceberg, that other names will be named by those who are directly involved in the investigation. Meanwhile, Tom Steyer. Well, he's changed his mind. The billionaire progressive activist and a leader in the drive to impeach the president said earlier this year he wouldn't run for the White House. But on Tuesday, he announced in a four-minute campaign video that he's launching a bid for the Democratic presidential nomination. The other Democratic candidates, he writes, for president have many great ideas that will absolutely move our country forward. But we won't be able to get any of those done until we end the hostile corporate takeover of our democracy. Uh, Steyer said in the statement sent along with the video to supporters. He said he would emphasize reducing corporate influence in politics and tackling climate change as he runs for the White House. Touting his record as an outsider, he noted that I've led grassroots efforts that have taken on big corporations and won results for people. That's not something you see a lot of from Washington these days. That's why I'm running for president, end quote. Well, the 62-year-old former hedge fund manager has become a force in national politics. Five years ago, he created Next Gen America, a grassroots advocacy organization that helped drive the youth vote in 2018, helping the Democrats win back the House in um, that same year. And over the past two years, he's become one of the uh, ringleaders in the push to impeach President Trump through his need to impeach movement. In January, when he announced he wouldn't run for president, he said he'd focused on pushing Congress to start impeachment proceedings against the president and vowed to spend $30 million behind that effort. Since then, he said he's become frustrated with the Democratic majority in the House over their pace in approaching impeachment. But he uh, uh, made no mention of impeaching Trump in his presidential campaign announcement. I don't know why he would, because he presumably would win the White House rather than uh, follow an impeachment. But Trump was briefly seen in Steyer's campaign video. He, uh, Steyer starts his White House bid with some advantages. He has a vast amount of wealth, both um, next-gen America and need to impeach. 
have a very large grassroots reach. He uh, now has one week to receive contributions from 65,000 individual donors to make the stage at the second round of Democratic presidential nomination debates. The other threshold, reaching 1% in three qualifying polls, appears to be out of reach. The Republican National Committee called Steyer the latest candidate to join the Democrats' clown car, which, of course, the Republicans had last time around in terms of sheer numbers. After a false start, left-wing extremist Tom Steyer has finally formalized his self-promotion tour under the guise of a presidential campaign, the RNC spokesman Steve Guest said. The only thing Steyer's campaign will do is light more of his money on fire as he joins the rest of the 2020 Democrat field in pushing policies that are way outside the mainstream, end quote. Secretary of State Michael Pompeo announced uh, today that the U.S. Department of State has created a Commission on Unalienable Rights, which is designed to advise the Secretary on human rights grounded in our nation's founding principles and the principles of the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Pompeo says the commission is composed of human rights experts, philosophers and activists, Republicans, Democrats and independents of varying backgrounds and beliefs uh, who will provide him with advice on human rights grounded in our nation's founding principles and the principles of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The secretary at the State Department said it is a sad commentary on our times that more than 70 years after the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, gross violations continue throughout the world, sometimes even in the of human rights, he said. The time is right for the informed review of the role of human rights in American foreign policy. The Declaration of Independence, which was ratified by the Second Continental Congress on the 4th of July, 1776, states, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. Secretary Pompeo continued uh, saying that I hope that the commission will revisit the most basic questions. What does it mean to say or claim that something is, in fact, a human right? How do we know or how do we determine whether that claim that this or that is a human right is it true and therefore ought to be honored? Is it, in fact, true, as our Declaration of Independence asserts, that as human beings, we, all of us, every member of our human family, are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights? That commission um, named today. Meanwhile, in the wake of a Supreme Court decision permitting a cross to remain on a public highway, the Department of Veterans Affairs has revised its policies on religious symbols it's in displays at VA facilities. VA Secretary Robert Wilkie announced last Wednesday that the new policies will reduce inconsistencies among VA facilities. We want to make sure, he says, that all of our veterans and their families feel welcome to at VA, no matter their religious beliefs. Protecting religious liberty is a key part of how we accomplish that goal, he said in a statement. He went on to point out that these important changes will bring simplicity and clarity to our policies governing religious and spiritual symbols, helping ensure we are consistently complying with the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution at thousands of facilities across the department. Well, the revised policies allow the inclusion in appropriate circumstances of religious content in publicly accessible displays at VA facilities. 
They also permit patients to request and be provided with sacred texts, symbols, and religious literature during treatment at facilities or visits to VA chapels. And they allow the VA to accept donations of religious literature, cards, and symbols at its facilities and distribute them to VA patrons under appropriate circumstances or to a patron who requests them. The announcement noted that the Supreme Court's June 20 decision in which it permitted the so-called Peace Cross, a World War I monument at Bladensburg, Maryland, to remain in a traffic circle. The VA said the case reaffirmed the important role religion plays in the lives of many Americans and its consistency with constitutional principles. You might recall some time uh, back there were um, uh, religious symbols removed, a Bible in particular, but perhaps other symbols as well, from a display Uh, because of objections from others at the VA who found them unacceptable. Meanwhile, Democrats' uh, signature policy proposal to raise the federal minimum wage uh, would cost roughly 1.3 million jobs nationwide, even as it uh, boosts wages for 17 million workers and lift uh, 1.3 million uh, families out of poverty, according to a report by the Congressional Budget Office released yesterday. The report offers uh, the most detailed analysis to date of the proposed $15 hourly federal wage. It's a mixed bag for House Democrat leaders who are just days away from putting the legislation on the floor. The Democratic bill, which would phase the $15 minimum wage over five years, only recently won enough support for across the caucus to reach the floor vote. The CBO's findings that a $15 hourly minimum wage would result in 1.3 million jobs lost was a median estimate. The CBO's upper estimate of 3.7 million uh, jobs lost poses another test for Democratic centrists, many of whom were skeptical about the impact on local business. The nonpartisan agency also predicted a $9 billion drop in real income in 2025, largely the result of a drop in business income as well as price increases for goods and services across the country. We're going to take a break here. Um, You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. And by the way, did I mention, did I tell you that portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, before hitting the road for their summer vacations, the justices of the U.S. Supreme Court announced last week they're going to hear a major school choice case in the next term. If the court rules in favor of the families that brought the case, it would pave the way for educational freedom and opportunity for millions of children across the country. Now, that's one interpretation. Of course, those holding the opposite point of view believe this will be the the linchpin that uh, ultimately crumbles public education as we know it. Well, the case Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue deals with Montana's tax credit of up to $150 per year for donations taxpayers make to a scholarship granting organization. The scholarship granting organization then provides scholarships to income eligible children to attend a private school in their uh, of their choice. Recipients can use those funds at qualified schools, which initially included religiously affiliated private schools. Then the Montana Department of Revenue enacted a rule excluding religious schools, citing the state's constitution's no-aid provision known as the Blaine Amendment that prohibits public money for going to... uh Churches. Well, families with children at religious schools challenge that rule, arguing that it violates their federal constitutional right for free ex- uh, to the free exercise of religion. Well, religiously affiliated schools make up 69 percent of uh, private schools in Montana. 
If this rule were to be allowed to stand, it would uh, shut out a large percentage of schools from the scholarship program. It would limit the options of families that uh, relied on their assistance to send their children to uh, the schools of their choice. Well, the good news is that the Supreme Court set the stage for the Espinoza case and the 2017 ruling in Trinity Lutheran Church versus Comer. In that decision, the high court held that the state of Missouri violated the First Amendment's free exercise clause when it barred a church-run daycare center from receiving a grant to resurface its playground. You might recall that decision. The state of Missouri argued that it was trying to avoid running afoul of the Establishment Clause, which prohibits states from recognizing an official state church. In doing so, they trampled on Trinity Lutheran's free exercise rights. Well, there's um, some play in the uh, uh, in this all of this uh, between that of the establishment and the free exercise clauses that requiring uh, of states uh, writing for the majority. Chief Justice John Roberts explained that by singling out the daycare center for disfavored treatment and denying a qualified religious entity a public benefit because of its religious character, Missouri went too far. Roberts wrote in the footnote that the decision was limited to express discrimination based on religious identity with respect to playground resurfacing and stressed that the decision does not address religious uses of funding other than uh, funding or other forms of discrimination. Well, Justice Gorsuch, he disagreed with the ruling um, uh, that the ruling was limited And uh, he pointed out that in a concurring opinion joined by Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, he concluded that the general principles of this decision do not permit discrimination against religious exercise, whether on the playground or uh, anywhere else. Well, shortly after issuing this decision, they then instructed the courts in Colorado and New Mexico to square their rulings in cases dealing with a school voucher program and a textbook lending program with the Trinity Lutheran decision. So the scope of that decision, that ruling remains unclear. And now the court has the opportunity in the Espinoza case to make clear that states may not require religious organizations to check their beliefs at the door, so to speak, before entering the secular world. So that decision they have decided, or at least that case, they have decided to take up and it could resolve uh, questions going forward on the disposition of the state and funding. Uh, and the free exercise of religion. So that's good news that the the, the court rather has decided to take that up. And perhaps these earlier uh, decisions will reflect on how they're likely to rule in this case. Meanwhile, over the weekend, the National Education Association adopted a new business item. They're calling it a business item, declaring its support for the fundamental right to abortion under Roe versus Wade. The NEA is the most influential teachers union in the United States with more than three million members. It's also the nation's largest labor union of any kind. The NEA will honor the leadership of women, non-binary and trans people and other survivors who have come forward to publicly name their rapists and attackers in the growing international Me Too movement, they also went on to say. Furthermore, the NEA will include an assertion of our defense of a person's right to control their own body. Of course, we're talking about two bodies, one independent of the other, although housed by the other. Essentially, or rather especially for women, youth, and sexually marginalized people. The NEA vigorously opposes all attacks on the right to choose and stand uh, on the fundamental right to abortion under Roe versus Wade. Now, they never go on to say the right to choose to do what? To end the life of a developing human in utero in favor of the more mature life that houses that uh, developing 
uh, human. Well, the statement goes on to assert that this new stance is necessary because the most misogynistic forces under Trump want to abolish the gains of the women's rights movement. Of course, this has always been far earlier than Donald Trump from the day the decision was handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court was always controversial. And the truth is that young people are in larger numbers than ever before. Uh, more pro-life than they've ever been. So it has very little to do with Donald Trump. It has to do with the movement that is um, and science that affirms the developing human life and so on. Anyway, the doc in a document that aims to debunk the claims of its critics, the group once called the assertion NEA supports abortion a deception and stated that it does not have a pro-abortion policy. And uh, of course, that was changed yesterday with this decision. Meanwhile, black entertainment television founder and longtime Democrat Robert Johnson said in an interview that aired uh, today that the Democratic Party has become too liberal to defeat President Trump in 2020 unless major changes are made. The party, in my opinion, for me personally, has moved too far to the left, Johnson's told CNBC's Hadley Gamble. And he was asked if he supported one of the candidates uh, who is seeking the uh, Democrat Party nomination. Johnson is the, the country's first African-American billionaire. According to Forbes, he went on to say that because the party has become so liberal, he isn't supporting a particular 2020 candidate at this time. I think at the end of the day, if a Democrat is going to beat Trump, then that person, he or she, will have to move to the center. And you can't wait too long to do that. The message of some of the programs that Democrats are pushing are not resonating with the majority of the American people, end quote. Now, it's always difficult to pivot once you have uh, really... um, fought for the nomination, moving as far left as possible. And that seems to be the movement of those uh, candidates who are seeking that um, that party's endorsement to then pivot to the center after making uh, these far left um, proposals. And he's suggesting that time is short to do that. You can't pivot and still maintain any credibility. He said the uh, current far left state of the Democratic Party will work well in the primaries, but won't help in a general election, especially since he feels Trump has his base locked up. Well, that's that's an optimistic view. But nonetheless, the BET founder who supported Hillary Clinton in 2016 even praised some of Trump's recent accomplishments, saying, and I quote, I think the economy is doing great and it's particularly reaching populations that heretofore had very bad problems in terms of jobs and employment and the opportunities that come with employment. African-American unemployment is at its um, lowest level. I give the president a lot of credit for moving the economy in a positive direction that's benefiting a large amount of Americans. Johnson also told CNBC that he thinks tax cuts clearly help stimulate the economy, whereas partisan politics have gone too far. I think business people, he went on to say, have more confidence in the way the economy is going. If business people are concerned about anything, it's uh, the clear, clear partisan politics that's become too wicked and very mean. Johnson said he gives Trump an A plus for the economy, but added that divisive politics are not helping America as a global nation. The 73-year-old entrepreneur uh, founded BET in 1980 with a $150,000 loan, sold it for $3 billion in 2001. According to Forbes, this may uh, be a warning uh, for the um, uh, Democrat Party who relies significantly on the African-American vote uh, in the uh, general election. It's not to suggest that large numbers will vote Republican and for Donald Trump, but may not show up at the polls, although the numbers of African-Americans who are supporting Donald Trump has risen significantly of late. Something to uh, consider.
Uh, Meanwhile, I just want to mention one more thing about the census, acting U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Director Ken Cuccinelli, uh, speaking on Face the Nation over the weekend on Sunday, said that people who fill out the U.S. census, including the citizenship question, can rest assured that no other government agencies will see their names, their address, how they answer the question. There is a, a disconnect between actual individuals who complete the forms and those who might act on that information, and that seems to be part of the fear. CBS host Margaret Brennan asked, but if immigration officials like yourself will not see ultimately the details of the census in terms of immigration status, uh, answers um, of any person are not tied uh, it's aggregated data, so that's correct. This uh, this isn't, again, referring to the fact that uh, the information is not passed along in any detail. It's aggregated. So the concern that this is being used for political purpose is why um, I am asking you this question. Brennan um, was asked, and then he went on to say, right, well, the census is intended to gather an awful lot of information the way it used to. It's used now. However, if your question is, will my agency or other agencies see a person who says, no, I'm not a citizen, and their name and address and so forth, that's taken on an aggregate basis. That's not individualized data that comes to us, Cuncinelli said, um, confirming that, again, it's aggregated information and it's not linked to particular households or individuals within households. So. You can do with that what uh, what you will if you're concerned about uh, about that collection of information. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, self made billionaire Ross Perot, who ran for president in nineteen ninety two and nineteen ninety six, has died. He was eighty nine years old. He suffered uh, for five months, battled with leukemia, according to the Dallas Morning News reported earlier in the day. Perot, who won nineteen percent of the vote as a third party candidate in nineteen ninety two, died early uh, this morning at his home in uh, Dallas, surrounded by his family. According to a spokesman, James Fuller, the uh, native-born Texan who was uh, identified very quickly by his uh, very distinctive voice, who made his billions by founding Electronic Data Systems Corp., was seen by admirers as a patriot who served his country well before his two failed bids for the White House. In 1979, he financed a private commando raid to free two EDS employees being held in a prison in Iran. He was also a tireless advocate for Vietnam veterans. In 92, Perot spent more than $60 million of his own money to run against incumbent President George Herbert Walker Bush, who believes he cost uh, him his second term, and challenger Bill Clinton promising to bring his business acumen to the nation's finances. Some Republicans blamed him for that very thing, for Bush's loss, noting he pulled the largest percentage of votes for a third-party candidate since former President Theodore Roosevelt's 1912 bid. Well, Ross Perot's second campaign, four years later, fizzled, He um, gathered just 8% of the vote, and the Reform Party that he founded and hoped to build into a national political force began to fall apart. There is a season for everything, and then that season ends. However, Perot's idea of trade and deficit reduction remained part of the political landscape. His influence remained. He blamed both major parties for running up a huge federal budget deficit and letting American jobs be sent to other countries. The movement of U.S. jobs to Mexico, he said, created a giant sucking sound. And those of you who were around at the time remember that. He continued to speak out about federal spending for many years. In 2008, he launched a website to highlight the nation's debt with a ticker that tracked the, uh, the rising total, a blog, and a chart presentation. Henry Ross Perot was born in Texarkana, June 27th in 1930. His father was a cotton broker. 
His mother is secretary. Ross Perot said his family survived the Depression relatively well through hard work and by managing their money carefully. Young Perot's first job was delivering papers in a poor, mostly black part of town from his pony, Miss B. Perot said uh, when the newspapers tried to cut his commission, he complained to the publisher and won. He said he learned to take problems straight to the top. Well, from Texarkana, Perot went to the U.S. Naval Academy, even though he'd never been on a ship or seen the ocean. After the Navy, he joined International Business Machines in 1955, quickly became a top salesman in his last year at IBM. He filled his sales quota for the year in January. Hmm. In 1962, with a thousand of his thousand uh, dollars from his wife, uh, her name was uh, Margot. He founded Electronic Data Systems. Hardware uh, accounted for about 80% of the computer business, Perot said, and IBM wasn't interested in the other 20%, including services. So Ross Perot has shown um, uh, that he had the, uh, well, the chutzpah to move forward, did just that. Well, many of the early hires at EDS were former military men that had had to abide by Perot's strict dress code, white shirts, ties, no beards or mustaches, and long work days. Many had uh, crew cuts like Perot. Well, the company's big break came in the mid-1960s. The federal government created Medicare and Medicaid and the health programs for seniors, the disabled, and the poor. That was in the 60s. States needed help uh, in running the programs, and EDS won contracts starting in Texas to handle the millions of claims. Well, EDS first sold stock to the public in 1968, and overnight, Ross Perot was worth some $350 million. His fortune doubled and tripled as the stock price rose steadily. And in 1984, he sold control of the company to General Motors Corp. for about $2.5 billion and received $700 million in a buyout. In 2008, EDS was sold to Hewlett Packard Company. Well, Ross Perot went on to establish another computer service company, Perot Systems Corp. He retired as CEO in 2000 and was succeeded by his son, Ross Perot Jr. In 2009, Dell Inc. bought Perot Systems. Well, in September of 2011, Forbes magazine estimated his wealth at $3.5 billion and ranked him number 91 on its list of richest Americans. But of course, he passed away early this morning. He can't take any of that with him. And my hope and prayer is that Ross Perot was prepared as he was in life, prepared for the life to come. Billionaire Ross Perot, who ran twice for president, dead at 89. Tomorrow on the program, we're looking forward to talking with Tim Brine. You may not be familiar with the name, but he is an urban missionary, a pastor, an itinerant evangelist. And we're going to talk about Skate Church. I'm looking forward to uh, to that. If you're not familiar with Skate Church, it's a very innovative approach to uh, not only teaching and training young people to you know be good skaters, but also to bring the gospel in a context that they can uh, understand. So I'm looking forward to that on Wednesday. On Thursday, we'll talk with Jack Alexander, um, who is going to present to us a Barna study, The Mercy Journey. We'll explain all of that when he uh, when he joins us. But how do you reach the younger generations? And this survey gives us some insight into uh, how to do that effectively. So that's coming up on Thursday. And then on Friday, looking forward to uh, Fun Friday. Now, I just learned earlier today that James Blend will not be joining me on the program for Fun Friday. So I'll mention that now so that you can get your grieving over with between now and then. But we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news on Friday and hope you will join us for that. Clark will be engineering and who knows, he might just weigh in during the program as well. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.